into a brick wall, namely the ever-loving thing. Hey there and welcome to Marvel by the Month. My name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. And this is a, another bonus episode of Marvel by the Month. Season 4 is going to begin in just two weeks. Um, and uh, so we're uh, filling a little bit of time here, taking a departure from our usual formula. This episode, we're going to talk about some what-if stories. Uh, we've done this once before. It's going to be, uh, these are diving in even further with a bunch of different creators. In season three, which we just wrapped up a couple weeks ago, uh, we focused really heavily on the Fantastic Four because that's where some of Marvel's best stuff was happening uh, in this era. Um, it started out with the Fantastic Four and Daredevil teaming up to take on Dr. Doom um, <laughs> after he had taken over the Baxter building. Um, and then Ben Grimm got brainwashed by the Frightful Four um, and turned against his teammates, which is pretty great. Sue and Reed got married. I think the entire wedding took up half of a page and the rest of it was just every superhero fighting every supervillain. And we had our friend Noah on to talk about that. So it was even better. <laughs> marriage expert noah campbell yeah uh then uh the inhumans showed up um and that was a crazy awesome story arc uh and then the season ended with the coming of galactus and the first appearance of the silver surfer so uh yeah pretty all right it was a good season and that's also credit to to you for like scoping out where we should begin and end and that's why we take a couple weeks between each season (laughs) (laughs) to give brian time to find the the arc of the story of the stories right Uh, yeah yeah yeah. uh just you know dinking around with my spreadsheets and my (laughs) in databases i'm like let's see where this begins and ends oh thank thank goodness for you it would just be a rambling stream of consciousness you know podcast with three listeners if it were up to me alone we we definitely have our fair share of those early in the catalog so (laughs) that's true uh yeah you know it took us a little while to to hit our stride um oh yeah and and the other thing that was awesome about uh the run of fantastic four is that joe sinnott uh rest in peace um he became uh kirby's anchor on fantastic four at this point and then like didn't give that job up for almost two decades yeah um, he just made that he was a company man at that point yeah <laughs> seriously uh that dude was uh just amazing um and improved everything he ever did uh and really that's where i, I think that's where kirby's art really popped um and fantastic four just you know for so long just became the center of the marvel universe so in season three, we talked a ton about Fantastic Four. Um, so for this bonus episode, we're going to do uh, a Fantastic Four themed what if episode. So we uh, we chose uh, three stories that are available on Marvel Unlimited uh, from the What If series, the first volume of What If, um, all of which feature the Fantastic Four. There are a few that I was hoping that we could get in there, um, which focus specifically on the coming of Galactus storyline. Um, but unfortunately, Marvel Unlimited doesn't have those uh, in its library yet. This is the first, but I'm sure not the last time that we are going to run up against some limitations in what Marvel <laughs> Unlimited will allow us to read. It's when we jump forward in the future or back. Uh, that's where <laughs> we be around the 60s if we try to go earlier it got a little rough um with a couple comics and yep and yeah and the 80s they're still i'm guessing there's some people at marvel based on the things i see come in each week their sole job is to be like recoloring artwork from x-force whatever and putting those up and it's just hit and miss what what they get to I saw a bunch of dazzler stuff come in about a couple months ago but yeah yeah and and I, I don't know what the rhyme or the reason is. I, my 
gut feeling is that you know as things come out in reprint editions then they also become available um, at some point after that because the work has been done but uh, I know that when Denny O'Neill passed a week or two ago um, I was trying to find some uh, some of his Daredevil work uh, and that's missing from Marvel Unlimited for the most Hmm. part so hopefully they fix that by the time we get to the 80s because that would really be a bummer if we weren't able to to talk about some of that but yeah it's been a crazy time this year in general but we have recently lost joe sinnott and denny o'neill like within yeah. a couple weeks of each other right yeah and two guys i just have a ton of respect for and that's one of the reasons that i really love doing this podcast like i feel like in a way we're able to preserve a little bit of this history um if anyone hearing this has any um relationship with Roy Thomas um please like just wrap him in bubble wrap um <laughs> put him in a like a, a a sealed chamber uh and with you know no sharp corners and you know just make sure he's eating nothing but like the healthiest of macrobiotic diets <laughs> I did not know where you're going with that for sure I thought you were maybe going to take him hostage to do the podcast <laughs> but I see you're trying to preserve him and yeah. his life that's very nice of you yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm willing to imprison him in my basement studio here. And <laughs> he could just be our third host uh, until he figures out a way to free himself. But it's like misery with a uh, with a podcast. So, yeah, yeah. You know, there's someone right now pitching that in Hollywood. Like, <laughs> get this. It's misery with a podcast. <laughs> now I've got your attention. Uh. <laughs> That'll be $600,000, please. Our Hollywood voices are awesome. That's um, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> uh, anyway, what if? Uh, what if that was a thing? Um, what if these were things? Uh, one of the things I really love about What If as a series, the I think the greatest strength of the Marvel Universe is the continuity, right? Like, supposedly, every issue that you read that comes out every month is part of this story that goes back 60 years, um, and it's all part of the same tight continuity. Um, you know, it, it's like the issue of Fantastic Four that you pick up on the stands is just a continuation of the same story that began in November 1961. And that's great. But also, you know, I think at times it becomes a little stifling. There's only so much you can do with these characters because, you know, they have to be part of the same story. And obviously there's a ton of brand equity invested in all of them. You can't stop doing Peter Parker Spider-Man stories. Y- you can maybe for a little bit but you're going to have to come back to him again. Like that's the way this works. But the cool thing about what if stories is that the writers get to leverage all of this continuity, but they're not bound by it. So they actually can do things where characters can die. Characters can retire. Characters can, you know, you can go in all sorts of different directions. Um, And so like of the three stories we're going to read, we're going to talk about for this episode. Like one of them is a pretty grim fantastic four story. Yeah. It's dark. And one of them uh, is a really clever sort of remix of Fantastic Four number one. And uh, the third one is just bonkers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, so you can do all sorts of different kinds of things that you can't do in the mainstream Marvel Universe. So so I guess with all of that said, uh, let's go ahead uh, and take a little break. And then when we come back, we'll kick this off. How's that sound? That sounds awesome. All right, we'll be right back on Marvel by the Month.
Welcome back. We are going to talk about what if the Invisible Girl had married the Submariner. This uh, issue is What If, Volume 1, Number 21. It was written by Bill Mantlo with art by Gene Colan, inked by Bob Wycheck. Uh, and this came out in 1980. So uh, it's also a direct sequel to What If, Number 1. Um, and it takes place in the same Earth, which is Earth 772. For everybody keeping score on their bingo cards. In that one, um, that was the what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four issue uh, that we talked about the last time we did one of these uh, what if episodes. At the end of that issue, Sue winds up, she chooses Namor over Reed and she's going to stay in Atlantis with him um, because she kind of feels like she's just a fifth wheel um, with Spidey on the team. Um, that kind of breaks Reed's heart, but that's sort of where we left it. So um, they're back down to being the Fantastic Four, but it's Spider-Man instead of Sue. Yeah. And as we get into it, we just start with Reed, Ben, and Johnny fighting the Super Scroll, which is pretty cool. Four pages in, Spider-Man shows up, so it, that reveals which universe we're in. Right. Um, and then they sort of recap the what if number one. Things have not been going well <laughs> for the FF. Uh, no, not at all. One of the things that we saw in our last season is that Especially after uh, Reed and Sue got married, Reed just turned into a total jerk. So he, you know, he's a jerk to Sue after they get married, and with Sue gone, um, he decides to be just as much of a jerk to her replacement. <laughs> so he's like constantly being critical of Spider-Man. He's like, "Oh, that's not the way Sue would have done it," or it's like, "Oh, if only Sue was here, she would have." And you know, Spidey's a pretty capable dude, uh, and he's a genius also he's never been much of a team player to begin with um he literally wanted to be um, in the fantastic four for the paycheck uh, yeah. so there's only so much of this he's willing to put up with um and pretty early on in the story he decides he has had enough he tears the four patch off of his little spider emblem and that's it he walks off he gives reed some you know pretty good free uh psychoanalysis <laughs> he just like tells him exactly what's wrong with him you've got to get over sue you're you are projecting you are you know he just gives yep. him the whole thing and let and leaves because he's also uh i think it's safe to say peter parker in his own way is a hundred times more emotionally intelligent than reed richards yes uh, <laughs> so he's all the brains and a million times the heart yeah Okay, so now they're back down to just the three of them again. Um, so it's just uh, Ben and Johnny and Reed. Then we cut to Atlantis, uh, where Namor and Sue are being honored as the king and queen. Sue's pregnant with their first child. Everyone seems really happy. And this includes uh, Warlord Krang, who we have seen constantly scheming against Namor in the regular continuity. But, you know, he is totally chill with the whole situation now. Um, he has won the heart of Lady Dorma, so uh, he's happy. He's given up his usurping ways, and uh, yeah, it's just everything seems real good, uh, suspiciously good in Atlantis. <laughs> yeah. Under the water, and so Sue tells Namor she would like the birth of their child, quote, to signal a healing of old wounds, to herald a time of peace between Namor and the Fantastic Four. And because it seems like Sue has made him a changed fish man, Namor agrees uh, and tries to make peace. So he heads up to the surface world. Bill Mantlo is a very good writer. And I think what's really interesting about this is 
how we see that in the same way that Sue is sort of a softening influence on Reed and how he is lost without her, she's doing the same thing for Namor. Like he's, he's not, you know, imperious rexing all over the place. Um, He, this is not, he does not want to do this, but he's really happy with his life. This is obviously important to the person he cares most in the world about. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to the surface. I'm going to make peace with your brother and your crappy ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and, the, and this isn't an Atlanta, an Atlantis joke, but this is what, what if does best. It shows the ripple effects of one small change, one tweak. And this is really getting into the character effects. So we have Namor and Krang behaving like pretty much rational people. Uh, we have Reed behaving like total idiot. And then Johnny uh, increasingly behaving like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so just that one, this change with Sue choosing to stay down there has pretty much left the world in a better place, arguably, you know, as we get into this story, it's like Atlantis is cool. Fantastic Four is still solving problems. In fact, that's the other thing in the short amount Spidey's there, they show them just like capturing every villain they've ever encountered. Yeah. Uh, so it's like they're wrapping things up in this yeah. perfect utopia. Well, certainly there couldn't possibly be any complications uh, to come from this. So let's go back to the Baxter building and check in on the boys. Yeah, As we tune in on them, um, Johnny is pranking Ben with the old flames through the air duct trick, mm-hmm. which I think we have literally seen in an early issue of Fantastic Four. Yeah, from the I think from a different floor or something, but he's doing something through the ducts. And yeah, it's like Ben, it's like Ben is reading or writing or something like that. And and Johnny's like blowing flame through the air duct. Um, and it's and Ben's like, oh, it's like a sauna in here. And then he figures out what's going on. So then, uh, you know, Ben comes storming mad uh, after Johnny and they start to fight. But now normally this would be the point at which Sue is like, oh, boys, you know, and like steps in and separates them because she's the mom of the group. Sue's not there. So there's no one to really de-escalate the situation. So it just gets more and more intense. And then Johnny starts to wonder, wow, I bet I bet Namor hypnotized Sue. There's no way that she would have just willingly gone uh, and married him. Yeah. Yeah. And married him. And then Ben's Ben's like, no, that's crazy. He says, Reed was quote, too panty wasted to fight for his woman. <laughs> um, and that just does not sit well with Reed. And he socks Ben in the mouth uh, with a stretchy fist. And Ben has had enough. Uh, he rips a couch in half and he's like, I'm out. You got some stuff to work through. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Um, so now we're down to the Fantastic Two. And the, the, even this, even with this big fight with the Fantastic Four, Ben's leaving going like, now I can maybe start a life with Alicia. Like, yeah. it's just like, I, you know, I feel better about this. Uh, so again, sort of a utopian deal, uh, even though things are still rough right around this crux of Reed. Yeah. Um, so that is when Namor at the worst possible time makes his entrance <laughs> uh, uh, and invites Johnny and Reed to Atlantis um, because, you know, Johnny's the, his brother-in-law and they immediately get into a fight. Like, of course. So Reed and Johnny say that Sue only chose Namor to protect the surface world. Namor's 
gets a little mad, but he plays it cool. He says it was Reed's insensitivity to her needs that drove her away. Yeah, uh, which feels a little bit like a double entendre to me. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like you just obviously don't know how to make Sue happy, Reed. Yep. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, maybe true. There's a real racist tinge though, that starts in on yeah. Reed's anger. He keeps referring to Namor's inhumanity, calls him a man fish. Namor chooses not to fight any further because Johnny is Sue's brother uh, and she asked him to come to them in peace. So Namor just keeps trying to de-escalate other than that one dig, um, which is totally not Namor. Like he's getting insulted. He's getting and he's still just like, I'm here. I'm doing you a favor. and I'm not killing Johnny. I really want to. I'm not. Uh, He says, I came in peace and in peace do I depart. But the hatred you harbor in the recesses of your hearts for my people and I will one day head both our worlds down the path to destruction. If it is war you want, you will find Atlantis ready. So he's still he's still leaving like, guys, I'm uh, still cool, but do not mess with me now after this nonsense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This absolutely not a threat is a very serious promise, but that's not how Reed takes it. And he goes to the United Nations. Um, He uses his reputation to get a uh, meeting with the Security Council. And he tells them that Namor is planning an attack on the surface world. And Johnny now, by the way, has totally bought into Reed's like racist tirade. Um, And uh, he says things like, Earth will never give in to those blue-skinned water breathers. I'm like, (laughs) Jesus, Johnny. I'm like, do you also know they're on Earth, Johnny? Come on. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's totally, it is very racist at that point. He's forgot, it's like forgetting that Mexico and Canada are in North America, you know, that that kind of job. Yeah, yeah, it totally reads like that. And I don't think that's accidental. So Reed's trying to drum up uh, hostility against Namor and Atlantis, uh, but he's using doctored footage that makes it seem like Namor is being much more threatening than he actually was. And Ben is the one who shows up with the actual film of what Namor said to discredit Reed. Yeah, and Reed, I mean, Reed recut this thing. He he yeah. totally made some fake news out of the footage they had from the Baxter building. Yeah, and he, he knew what he was doing. There, yeah. There's no way he didn't. And so Reed is just totally discredited in everyone's eyes, except for Johnny. You know, Johnny's like, hey, man, even if Namor didn't threaten the surface, like you said, I mean, it's only a matter of time before he does that again, right? Like, he's done it before, he'll do it again. So then Johnny convinces Reed what they need to do, the two of them, need to invade Atlantis, bring about a little regime change, and then, quote-unquote, rescue Sue. So it's like, this is just getting (laughs) dark. Yeah, they they just flipped to full villainy at this point. So, So that's what they do. That's the even crazier part, that some writer got to just go, Reed and Johnny are getting all racist, and they're gonna go down and try to start a war with Atlantis. And yep. uh, so Johnny goes in first blazing away underwater. Thanks to <laughs> Reed science TM, uh, the <laughs> oxy tablet. Um, Reed swallows an oxy tablet and plants an ultra weapon in some ruins. We don't quite know what it's doing yet, but we know if Reed has called something an ultra weapon, uh, we'll be lucky if the planet survives. Right. Yeah. And Johnny, uh, as Reed is doing this, uh, Johnny draws Namor and the Atlanteans out by, you know, blasting Atlantis with flame and fireballs. You know, so Namor obviously, you know, rushes out to the defense of his people and the stress of the battle uh, that erupts between 
Namor and Johnny causes Sue to go into labor. I mean, this is her husband and her brother, um, and they're trying to kill each other. Namor wraps Johnny up in some flame-proof seaweed, <laughs> and, uh, and then he rushes to Sue's side, and, uh, and Reed beats him there. And he can't believe that Sue is pregnant, and he concludes that things have got to be worse than he imagined they were. Not only did he did he force her to marry him, but now she's pregnant with his child. Oh, no. Right. And it, because he is in this dark mindscape of of grumpiness and what like the way he is seeing the world is poisoned. Uh, yeah. And reads like, Sue, darling, it's me, Reed. Can you hear me? I've come to take you out of this hellish place to take you home. And Sue's just all like, what are you talking about? This is my home. <laughs> uh, and that's when Namor busts in to rescue his wife. And that's when we discover what Reed was up to. His device is emitting rays that are transforming his water breathing race into air breathers. So it's sort of the opposite of something that the Atlanteans have tried to pull. Uh, I think that they've done that in more recent memory. They actually make part of a, like New York water breathers and then force a tsunami onto it (laughs) it's pretty cool um so i think maybe they got that idea from here where Mm -hmm. reed is doing the opposite so he's forcing them to become air breathers so reed's basically totally fine with committing genocide to get his ex-girlfriend back yeah he's he's a madman yeah so sue has had enough of this nonsense like she's in labor and you know, her home is being threatened. She just blasts Reed with a bunch of invisible force spheres. Um, and Dorma tells Reed, what did you not think this through? Like, like you're going to kill her with this machine. And, and this is the first time the world's smartest man realizes that, <laughs> oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. And then Namor tells Reed again that he came to them in peace. Um, and this finally gets through Reed's thick rubbery skull. Now he's like, he's just starting to realize what a terrible mistake he's made. Yeah. And the th- I mean, the thing is, it's not just that he's going to kill. I mean, that's the the, mis- the first part he realizes he's going to kill Sue. He's yeah. still not too worried about the genocide. He's committing. Not really, no. <laughs> and, uh, and so he, that's how crazy he is. But Krang heads out to uh, try to find Reed's device, um, even though he certainly will die. Yeah, he's going to sacrifice himself to go out there and try to shut it off to save some of the Atlanteans. Yep, and then Namor uh, punches Reed through a window. Uh, luckily, it's in the direction of his hidden weapon, so Reed is, uh, you know, he he's dashing for the weapon to disarm it. He finds Krang lying in a heap next to it, and so uh, Reed beats Namor to the machine, uh, and he deactivates it. But because he had taken the oxy tablet, which made him a water breather temporarily, the machine has counteracted that and now he's drowning in the water so it looks like this is it for reed um he sacrificed himself to undo this terrible harm that he inflicted but namor shows up thinking reed killed krang which he did but not directly right yeah (laughs) (laughs) um reed collapses in namor's arms seemingly sacrificed himself and then back at sue's bedside johnny finally burns through namor's super seaweed so he's just (laughs) been up there being racist and trying to burn out of seaweed the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> um, His finest moment. <laughs> Reed and Namor return with Krang's corpse and Namor rescued Reed by giving him another oxy tablet as the ultra weapon shuts down. Yeah. So Namor saved Reed's life after yeah. everything he had done. Wow. Um, Reed tells Johnny, look, I was a fool to, 
to do all of this. I I was not thinking straight. I, um, Johnny's not even hearing it. He refuses to believe that Sue is with Namor by choice, even though literally everyone in the room, including Sue, is saying that's what's <laughs> happening. Um, and uh, uh, he just flies off vowing revenge. Um, so he's fully buying into Q conspiracy. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then we end up with Namor grudgingly admitting that Reed saved Atlantis, even though Reed was the one who nearly destroyed it in the first yeah. place. Sue gives birth. I, I thought that was going to go totally wrong as I was reading this story. I was like, you guys are going to have a superhero tussle with this lady who's going into labor. This is not going to end well. But yeah. she gives birth and Reed has to look on as Namor and Sue celebrate their newborn son, something he dreamed of doing with Sue someday. Yeah. And he vows to do everything in his power to maintain peace between the surface world and Atlantis. So maybe we are still in one of the best Marvel universes as far as uh, people behaving. I mean, yeah. that's maybe not the best for stories, but uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, you know, Reed has gotten over his broken heart and the madness that came with it. I mean, we, I guess we have Johnny Storm as a supervillain now, but I mean, yeah, he's whatever. It's Johnny Storm. He can't get that right. He's, he's going to be the next pace pot, Pete. <laughs> if, at best. At best. But yeah, I mean, overall, like, like there's, this is, I think, a what, 35, 36 page story or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like a, a, you know, a issue and a half length. Um, but, uh, Mantlo did a great job of, of telling a pretty complex story. Um, it's, I, I think it's it's consistent. It's emotionally consistent. Um, uh, where you see, like you were talking about earlier, um, you know, the ripple effects of, okay, you know, the first thing changes and things are still fairly similar to how they were, you know, in the original continuity. But the further and further you get from that, you start seeing all these unintended consequences of it. Um, yeah, it's and- so the psychological effects too. That's what's so cool. It's not like the cosmic rays got gamma radiation in them. So you know. Right. Now everybody's a Hulk Fantastic Four. It's it's more complicated than that. Although that I'd still read that what if too. But um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> somebody's just now going okay. Steal this idea and write this down now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's definitely one way uh, that you can do a really good what if story. Another way to do a what if story is to stay very close to the original continuity. And I think that's what we're going to talk about next. So let's go ahead and take a break. Um, And then when we come back, uh, we'll let uh, Mr. John Byrne take a crack at this. Welcome back to our special Fantastic Four What If episode of Marvel by the Month. So we had just talked about a Fantastic Four what-if story where things were very, very different um, from the universe that we have been used to. And now we're going to talk about one where something fairly significant happens, but events play out very similar to how they originally did. And so uh, this uh, story is what if the Fantastic Four had not gained their superpowers? Um, This comes from What If Volume 1, Number 36, which was written and drawn by John Byrne. It came out in 1982. Man, it's going to be like three or four years or something before we get to the John Byrne run on Fantastic Four. Yeah. Um, but he had a like an incredible run from 81 to 86. Uh, after Lee and Kirby's run, it's probably one of the very most seminal runs of the of the 
the title ever. Um, yeah, it defines a lot of the stories you would think of when you think of the Fantastic Four. If you've you know read them your your whole lives as we have, yeah. Uh, and it's John Byrne. Like I haven't seen his art for a while, and I forgot how much I love it. Like it's its own style, very detailed, just beautiful. He, I mean, he's famous as a comics professional for a reason um because he does write these interesting stories and can draw like a, a moth as they would say in <laughs> trailer park boys um he has his personality issues i've heard but uh he uh he's great you know what can yeah. you say well you know it's it's if some of the stories are true um it's just a case of someone who he has to be this good at his job for people to think as highly of him as they do um, <laughs> because otherwise, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you can only get away with, with certain things for so long before you either have to put up or shut up. So, yeah. Um, and burn to his credit, always put up. Um, yeah. He was very good at what he did. He made alpha flight. I love alpha flight. Uh. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be the first line of his obituary. But. <laughs> if I if I get a chance shot at it, it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, maybe in the Canadian newspapers. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, so this is I I really like this issue. Um, I hadn't read it in a while, and it was fun to revisit it. But uh, this is basically Burns' crack at telling a challenges of the unknown story. Um, when uh, Jack Kirby was at DC prior to coming to Marvel and co-creating the Marvel Age of Comics and Fantastic Four specifically. Um, he created a, a adventure serial for DC called The Challengers of the Unknown, um, which was very Fantastic Four-like, uh, except it, it featured uh, four adventurers who did not have any superpowers. And they wore purple. And they wore purple. That's basically all you need to know, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and Byrne is not even being subtle about this. Like there's at one point in the story... Johnny asks Reed, what do you think we'll find up ahead, Reed? And Reed literally responds, the unknown, Johnny, but whatever it may be, will beat its challenge. And <laughs> yeah. like both of those words are emphasized in the copy. Like, I mean, <laughs> they wear blue and black jumpsuits like the Fantastic Four costumes without the four on the chests. Um, but they also wear purple baseball caps and gear, which is the signature color of the challengers. So yeah. This is a, it's pure Kirby love all the way through it. Yeah. It's, it's basically the retelling of fantastic four. Number one, as we said, um, and the cover, you know, it's, it's the mole man's monster coming out of the ground. And we've seen this in a number of different ways, but like Ben's shooting a gun at it. Johnny's swinging in on a rope, shooting a gun at it. Sue is just caught in its grip as she is in the the first real cover and then reed's just tied up uh laying in front of it <laughs> he says if only these ropes weren't keeping me out of action <laughs> so you can it's it it looks like the story is going to run what if the fantastic four had not gained their superpowers they die like that's what right. <laughs> that's what it <laughs> seems like is going to happen yeah from based on this shot th like this recreation of the cover it's pretty simple um every what if has the point where the earth um, earth 8212 diverges from earth 616 so we're going yes. we're in earth 8212 for this what if um again if everybody's keeping track on their bingo cards it's simple ben Grimm tells reed richards they're not ready to launch their rocket because of cosmic rays 
Reed agrees with him, so they never wind up getting irradiated with cosmic rays. They just launch two weeks later with cosmic ray shielding. Yeah, um, and, and actual astronauts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. Sue and Johnny stay there and they get two real astronauts. I love that part. <laughs> it's it's really funny. Like, it's basically Fantastic Four number one being rewritten by someone who's like, guys, think about this for just a second. It's like, oh, yeah. No, no, we absolutely should not sneak onto a rocket base and launch ourselves into space. Like, yep. this is a terrible idea. Not with your girlfriend and her kid brother. Like, what are you thinking? That's um, insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in Fantastic Four, uh, in the continuity we know, comes about because uh, Reed won't listen to his best friend. Um, and in this continuity, a smarter Reed does listen to his best friend. And it turns yeah. out pretty all right. Yeah. That which surprised they don't uh, instantly get killed the first time they encounter anything. So they they um, they launch themselves uh, into space. Uh, the the shielding holds. They do not get bombarded with cosmic rays. They engage their star drive, and they make a twenty two uh, light year round trip in one Earth relative month. So a tremendous, you know, future science achievement. And then the Watcher informs us that within the year, the Earth has become a true spacefaring planet with small outposts on a dozen distant worlds it, within one year. Yeah, um, that's pretty fast. It's uh, pretty good. But yeah, uh, and, and then so so they establish these outposts. Um, like Reed just basically jumps humanity forward, you know, several hundred years. We are full on into like meeting the Vulcans territory. Yeah, I was just um, going to say in the Star Trek analogy, we have first contact. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, Reed Richards Rocket Group, uh, which is the team is called now, um, it holds the Star Drive patent. Um, and so he uh, puts together this vast scientific complex, which is dedicated to the advancement of mankind. I love it. And he has like a Richards logo that looks very Stark-like. And it, but it doesn't change the fact that the mole man's still in this universe. Um, right. Yeah. And this is where we sync back up with FF number one. Reed and Sue are being briefed on the mysterious disappearance of a nuclear plant behind the Iron Curtain. Suddenly there's a quake and that giant monster we see on the cover comes, <laughs> rips a gaping hole in the earth. But instead of like just jumping in to fight it, they're, you know, they don't have any powers. Right. So yeah. what, what really happens is they don't do that. <laughs> and, uh, and instead, they uh, Reed pinpoints its origin as the legendary monster Isle. Um, so same as what they did before, but they they're figuring this out uh, without engaging a monster first in, in battle. And th- throughout the issue, Burn does this really clever job of remix. So we keep coming back to the the threads and the plot points of that first FF number one. Yeah, and and in some cases, like specific lines of dialogue, like. Uh, just, you know, on the page that we're talking about where, you know, they're taking a look at the damage that the giant monster has done. This is page eight. Reed is, you know, flying in a helicopter with some army officer. He says, Monster Isle, I thought that was only a fairy tale, which is a direct quote from Fantastic Four number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when uh, the four of them are checking out the giant hole in the earth, Reed says, Sue, Ben and I know what we're doing, but you and Johnny... And then Sue says, don't say it, Reed. You're my husband. Where I, where you go, I go. And I'm tagging along with Sis, so it's settled, says Johnny. And that's exactly what they say before they get into the rocket in Fantastic Four number one. So, <laughs> you know, it's like Byrne, he's like, 
he's a student of all this stuff. Like he, he loves this stuff. He knows it inside and out. And he just keeps weaving these little threads all the way through the issue. Like I was saying, there, there's two ways to approach a what if story, a, a good what if story. The first is that you can do like the Bill Mantlow approach that we just talked about in the first story, where you just play things off uh, a small change uh, in one point has these cascading ripple effects that make a increasingly different universe. Mm-hmm. And then there's the burn approach, which he's doing here, which is that you can have a big change. Something goes very, very different, but there is something about fate that just keeps bringing you back to how things would have been no matter what. Yeah. The true heart of the characters yeah. keep them uh, sort of their their threads will keep intertwining with the same kind of story yeah yes exactly so it's it's almost like the you know like in a time travel story it's like oh the universe is trying to correct itself you know yeah like <laughs> it's it's always coming back to it's like you can't change the past it's always going to try to fix itself and i love the, i mean mainly burns premise is they don't get powers because that's just not a thing and the main power of the Fantastic Four is that Reed's really, really smart. And they're a very solid team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. but the the superpower that they really have is yeah. Reed's intelligence. Totally. Uh, yeah. So they still have this. It's like beyond measure and and beyond our, you know, normal human but he didn't gain that from cosmic rays. He had that brain to begin with. Right. So yep. that brain still exists as a human brain. And and everything else that happens is just so much more reasonable. Like the monster pops out. They don't mess with it. Later that day, they go look at the hole that the monster made. <laughs> right. It specifically says that like later that day. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's just like so much more reasonable. And that's sort of a John Byrne trope, I guess, is that yeah. he, it makes it more uh, real. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't do dumb stuff because it's a comic book, you know, right. like they, <laughs> they do smart stuff because they're realistic characters. Um, yeah. It's a good and, trick. And that yeah. is his, that is what I think makes him, uh, what I like so much about like alpha flight and things that he's worked on. It's just yep. that it's, there's humanity in it that way. Yes. And totally. it's not, you don't have to like take your disbelief and stomp on it. Um, to, <laughs> right. to be able to follow the, the Lieber leaps yeah you know, uh, oh, that, that was something i was gonna mention is like when they say that you know humanity had established a dozen outposts on different distant worlds i'm like oh god and every single one of them was a terrible larry lieber story <laughs> <laughs> sorry larry anyway so the four fantastic members of reed richards rocket group descend into this hole that was left behind by a giant monster they are attacked by subterranean monsters and separated into two groups. Uh, Reed and Johnny uh, go in one direction. Sue and Ben go in another, just like Fantastic Four number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the universe is correcting itself. Um, Reed and Johnny find a monorail, uh, and they ride it through the Valley of Diamonds, which overwhelms them and causes them to black out. And when they wake up, they've arrived at the Mole Man's throne room. Just like FF number one, except they didn't just fall into the Valley of Diamonds. But um, Right. Yeah, and then Sue and Ben blast away at the subterranean rock monsters um, and discover an access tunnel they crawl through. Um, So they're on their way from a different route. Back in Mole Man's throne room, things proceed almost identically to FF number one. We get the Mole Man explanation of his, you know, being shunned by the surface world and his secret underground tunnels and his plan to destroy everything um, and take over the upstairs, as I like to call it. Um, <laughs> uh, he beats Johnny in a stick fight. <laughs> yep. So stupid. <laughs> to prove Just like his, he did in, yeah. yeah. He's like proving his, you know, nearly supernatural powers because he's been, 
you know, in the dark for so long, he's got like basically daredevil powers, right. which I question because he's, he's just a little weird dude. I don't know that he's going to beat you in a stick fight. I think what this actually is, is that he's such a social outcast that he's basically Star Wars kid. Um, <laughs> uh it's it's pretty good uh yep it's again just realistic uh yeah i mean realistic as you can be when you're in the subterranean world of the mole man but um so while he's do while he's having the stick fight reed sees the control panel of a thermonuclear device behind the mole man's throne which he just recognizes at a glance (laughs) that's reed um and ben and sue arrive just in time to save johnny from a worse beating which is kind of too bad because (laughs) even yeah non-human towards johnny it would feel nice to see him get just sort of beat up a little bit yeah and then uh mole man makes a run for the uh the cord um that he'll pull to summon his monsters uh, which he does in fantastic four number one um and what this is something i really liked about this um uh, this time because ben is still human and he's still agile um he just tears after the mole man <laughs> and football tackles him uh, before he can reach the cord um, so he never gets a chance to pull it and never gets a chance to summon the aid uh, of those monsters. So just again, like it's, it's just a clever little bit. Like I'm just going to tweak this little thing here. Um, and like seeing it through, it's like, okay, how would human Ben be able to respond differently than Rocky Ben would or lumpy right. oatmeal Ben? But I f- Oh, um, I forgot, you know, when Johnny and Reed fall into the hole, Reed yeah. bangs up his, like dislocates his arm. Oh um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he just a normal um, like it's just the thing where you're like nobody would fall in that hole and not get hurt somebody's right. gonna get hurt and that's yeah. the reality burn thing he's like okay some somebody's got to get banged up somehow so he's been running like that you know it's just it's just that he's human and ben is human which gives him agility which is a yeah. weird thing to think of yep he's not gonna um, just solve the problem by punching holes in you know the mountain whatever right <laughs> Um, and so, so they, they've captured the mole man. They're going to march him to the surface as, as they're doing that though, he reveals that he's got another way to summon his monsters. Um, there's, there's like a, a switch, uh, hidden under a, something disguised as a rock. Um, it's so a hide a key basically. Yeah, yeah. It's basically, he has a hide a key to summon his monsters. <laughs> um, and, uh, so again, like it, this is okay. He didn't get a chance to pull the cord, but the monsters are still going to chase the fantastic four to the surface, no matter what. So, um, you know, reality's fixing itself. Yeah. Um, it's realigning with the original FF one. Yeah. Yeah. So it winds up being another mad dash to the surface, just like fantastic four number one. And when they, when Reed Richards rocket group, um, get to the surface, uh, they, that's the first time they realize they're on monster Isle because they didn't travel there. They went down through the whole, dug in in the rocket group's headquarters yeah. you know, in their campus uh, and then they took the crazy monorail ride and that's what got them to monster isle um but you know they they resurface um and they're on monster isle uh, and the army is there because reed told them about monster isle remember yeah like <laughs> he planted that seed early on reed's like we got to get out of here he's got a nuke so uh, they evacuate the island uh, just before mole man blows it sky high and then the story ends with the Reed Richards rocket group being honored by JFK in the Oval Office, who says, what can I say? You four are fantastic. Um, so there you go. It's it, There's so many cool plot holes fixed by Byrne, um, yeah. uh, you know, and explains how the Mole Man blew up his island. 
um, even, you know, it, it still doesn't exactly answer the question of why um, right. <laughs> he sealed himself below forever yeah. um, and explains why the monsters don't follow the FF to the surface. Sunlight blinds them. So, again, just like applying just one second thought and you get to do that with a what if if you want, you know, um, yeah. or you can go bonkers like the next what if we're going to talk about uh oh man i can't wait to talk about this one uh so let's go ahead and take our last break of the episode um and then when we come back we're going to talk about what if the original marvel bullpen had become the fantastic four Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. We're going to talk about uh, our final what if of the episode. What if the original Marvel bullpen had become the Fantastic Four? Uh, This is from What If Volume 1, number 11, written and drawn by Jack King Kirby, inked by Mike Royer, and this came out in 1978. This is just a big batch of 1970s Kirby madness, um, and it's clear he's having just a ton of fun with it. Um, so it, it hit the stands in October of 1978. This is one of the very last things uh, that Kirby would ever do for Marvel. Um, right after this, he would leave comics uh, to go work for Hanna-Barbera, where he would do a bunch of you know character designs for a bunch of different cartoons, including, but not limited to, Turbo Teen. Um, the last few books that Kirby was working on uh, during his return to Marvel which was only for a few years. It was like from 76 to 78. Uh, he he was working on Black Panther, Devil Dinosaur, and Machine Man, uh, none of which you can imagine were bestsellers yeah. uh, at the time. His last issues were published in November and December of 1978. And then also published in 1978 was his very last comics collaboration with Stan Lee, um, which was uh, Silver Surfer, The Ultimate Cosmic Experience. Um, and that was Marvel's very first graphic novel. So... Kirby left Marvel with a lot of hard feelings both times. Both times he left. Um, wasn't feeling great. But, uh, you know, given this and given the fact that he did the Silver Surfer uh, graphic novel with Stan, it does seem like, at least on some level, he, you know, had some fondness and nostalgia on his way out the door because that's exactly what this story is. When I was in high school, um, I wrote uh, a legit full-on novel um, a, a comedic fictional novel uh, based on basically caricatures of my friends. And I self-published it and like gave all my friends a copy for Christmas one year. And that's exactly what this feels like. It's just he he was going back to a time where he had a lot of fun going to work. Um, and he just told a silly, fun, crazy story uh, with his friends as superheroes. Um yeah. And he wrote it this too. I mean, that's the, the thing to remember. It's like he, he totally wrote it. He drew it. He edited it. Like he's yeah. credited as the editor. Yep. Uh, so it was just, just him having a blast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's obviously a very tongue in cheek story. Um, so it stars the original Marvel bullpen as the fantastic four. Uh, this earth is earth one, two, two, eight. Bingo. So- <laughs> Update your scorecards. Uh, Stan Lee uh, is Mr. Fantastic. Jack Kirby is the thing, obviously. He he credits uh, Saul Brodsky as Marvel's VP and Stan's second in command, which I guess is a more impressive title than production manager, which is what he was. <laughs> um, he, yeah, Saul is the human torch. Um, I, fa- I 
thought it was funny that Saul and not Steve Ditko is the Human Torch. I'm assuming that Jack decided that maybe Steve would not appreciate it <laughs> if he was put in here. Uh, Probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then um, <laughs> credited as Marvel Secretary, Flo Steinberg uh, is the Invisible Girl. We haven't talked much about her, but uh, she really was the face of Marvel Comics to anyone who came into the office. She answered a lot of fan mail. Um, she processed all the uh, Mary Marvel Marching Society subscriptions. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if you called the offices or visited the offices, Flo was the person you you reached. And uh, she wound up leaving the company in 1968 uh, after Martin Goodman denied her a $5 a week raise because Ugh. he had a very particular idea in his mind of what a secretary should be paid. And he was not going to budge on that. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's very on brand for Martin Goodman. Uh, it did say in the back of this, uh, in the letters page, which is called why not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it started with a note about this, that, um, Roy Thomas wanted to do this story with the original bullpen and he wanted to be the human torch in it, but because Jack <laughs> got a hold of it, he made Saul the, <laughs> the human torch. <laughs> That's awesome. And he just had to let it happen because Jack, Jack did what Jack wanted to do at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. And it's so meta and weird. Um, the story isn't the big deal. It's just no. basically, um, it begins with the FF fighting a cave troll on their way to visit a Dr. Murrow. Not to be confused with Morrow. It turns out the cave troll is Dr. Morrow. He was transformed by a mysterious box hidden in his laboratory that was emitting cosmic rays. Don't call it a mother box. (laughs) (laughs) And so this this plucky uh, band of bullpenners, uh, they recognize the not mother box because they were transformed by one very similar to it that was sent to the Marvel offices. Uh, a note on the box read greetings open this box and live the ultimate fantasy and it was signed the s people (laughs) Um, and so some uh, a couple other notes about the fantastic four of this world Um, so uh, unlike uh, the regular continuity fantastic four um, this fantastic four does have secret identities but they published the fantastic four comic book that takes place in earth 616 (laughs) Um, so yeah um and they this is great they like they keep disappearing from the marvel offices to do their superheroing um and at one point there's a quote uh by a an unnamed character who says luckily marie severin johnny ramita and this new kid named thomas are around to take up the slack <laughs> <laughs> oh and uh and kirby can transform uh back to human form at will so he's um, not stuck as the thing yeah right exactly so uh so they because of this they've dedicated their lives to tracking down the s people to force them to reverse the cosmic ray effect so they can just be normal and put out a comic book Uh, (laughs) um uh, somehow they determine that the s people are not human that was just some weird leap to make it keep the story keep moving i think yes yep um and i think they're giving stan they keep mentioning stan's like a little more uh you know, of an engineering whiz, um, right. Then he normally is. Uh, uh, so they go to Atlantis because they know S people aren't human. Um, and they believe the S people are about to attack Namor with one of their not mother boxes. And yes, in earth 1228, all of the fantastic fours villains actually exist. Just go with it. Yeah. So, uh, so they approach, uh, Atlantis, uh, Namor blasts their vessel and imprisons them. Uh, and then he confronts them with the not mother box that he has found. 
Um, and Stan tells Namor to destroy it, and he does. Uh, but he believes that Stan is the one who planted it because, like you said, in Earth 1228, Stan has Reed Richards' technical genius. So just go with it. <laughs> There's a lot of that. It's mainly like, look, we made the bullpen, the Fantastic Four. Oh, I got to put a story around this. And yeah, that's yeah. just Jack making this stuff up. And yeah. it's 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 not meant to be taken seriously. I can't emphasize that enough. Like this is it's a silly, fun romp. Like yeah. and and also like this is the thing that look, you either accept this and love it about Kirby's storytelling or it drives you crazy, but he just has these insane leaps of logic in his stories. You either roll with it and just experience, you know, the joy of an id totally unleashed or you get really uptight about it. And I'm I'm not about to let my OCD tendencies ruin my enjoyment of this story. Right. Yeah. And I do love I mean, we haven't really talked about just it, how they look like um, Stan has his big bushy mustache yes. uh, in the present. Um, so it's sort of like Reed, but, uh, and then Kirby as the thing is just so weird and awesome. (laughs) He draws himself as the thing, which makes sense, but he has these like weird eyebrows still. Yes. He's got the giant bushy eyebrows and he's always got a cigar. Um, yep. So he, he seems, I mean, basically I thought if you changed Kirby into Ben Grimm or into the thing, it would just be the thing like it is Kirby, you know, you didn't need to do any affectation. Um, and, uh, and Flo, um, just looks kind of normal and like her hair is always in distress. Um, yes. Like, which I don't know why that was the thing he did. And then Saul just looks oh, and, like and she has, un- she has dark hair and not blonde hair. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Saul just looks normal. He has dark hair, um, as well. Yeah. He just looks like a guy in a fantastic four suit. Like at a, go into a Comic-Con cosplay time. Oh, there's so much Kirby stuff, like so many, like underwater jet submarine heading to Atlantis scenes that are beautiful. Yeah. Um, and he just, I mean, that's what I think Kirby does when he's writing the story. Like he's going to leap just so he can do the next thing he wants to draw. If Kirby was restrained by conventional storytelling, uh, a, he wouldn't be Kirby and B you'd lose out on 90% of the best stuff. Yeah. So basically, I mean, the story, the FF free themselves, tussle with Namor for a while before Flo convinces them they mean no harm. Namor uses an extraterrestrial monitor, just go with it, uh, to discover <laughs> there's an alien right there in the room with them, which apparently didn't go off until he decided to turn it on. And it's a scroll. Yep, it's a scroll. The scrolls are the S people. Uh, this one was disguised as an Atlantean guard. Um, so the FF and Namor track it back to a scroll factory <laughs> um, on the ocean floor. Um, Namor and Jack tear it apart. Um, and that's it for the scrolls. And they're not mother boxes. Um, the threat is ended and uh, the FF, they don't get cured of their uh, superpowering. Um, but who cares? Like they're the fantastic four and Jack can just turn back into a normal human being anytime he wants. So <laughs> I don't see why you'd ever not want to be the fantastic four. Also, this is the last time Jack Kirby ever drew the Fantastic Four in a Marvel comic. <laughs> and really the only time he drew it was in the drawing of them drawing the Fantastic yeah. Four. Because the yeah. rest of the time they're all just bizarre weirdos. You know, again, this is sort of like, you know, we talked about Ditko's swan song um, with uh, the whole like master planner slash, you know, Spidey gets out from under the big heavy thing as being like, this is the last Spider-Man story and I'm walking away. He did a couple more after that, but 
But I mean, I think I feel like this is kind of Kirby's way of, you know, he 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 didn't want to go back to do the Fantastic Four, but obviously he wanted to put a little goodbye in there. You know, um, yeah. he didn't want to never do the Fantastic Four again or or he wanted to acknowledge that it was an important thing you know, in his life and in his career. So, and it's so much more because he's in it, you know, it's, yeah. and, and he's in it both as the thing and as Kirby, just seeing Kirby draw himself yeah. know, in the yeah. comic. Uh, it's also kind, you know, it's just like yeah. speaking to the characters that were his friends and speaking to the time. And it's so like insanely meta. <laughs> it's, it, it's beautiful. And it, it, so it is, a, it's a great way if he's, this is the last thing he did. It's, it's a really nice way to walk away from the FF. Yeah. And, and one of the other things I liked and, and I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Like when I was reading, it's like, Oh man, is he just going to have like a bunch of digs at Stan in here? You know? Yeah. And there's none of that. Like is really not like, I mean, everyone gets goofed on Kirby included. Um, although he does go out of his way. Like when we see that he can transform back into a normal human, uh, he goes out of his way to make sure that Flo compliments how handsome he is. Yes. Uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> that did seem a little <laughs> over the top. Yeah. Uh, but I like this, uh, this story a lot. It's, it's really silly, but it's also very sweet. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's worse ways to walk away from something. Thanks for listening to the special bonus episode of uh, Marvel by the Month. Um, we love doing these what if ones. Um, hopefully by the time we get to doing the next batch, uh, there will be some more of them available on Marvel Unlimited. But even if there's not, there's plenty in there to choose from. I'm sure we'll come up with some good stuff. And we um, promise when we get into season four, which is just a couple weeks away, um, mm-hmm. y- there will be more uh, guests. If you're tired of just hearing Brian and I yammer on about comic books, um, <laughs> we'll have guests to make us sound um funnier and smarter and more interesting if you would like to uh, drop us a line about this episode or anything literally anything marvel by the month at gmail.com um you can find us on instagram at marvel by the month on facebook facebook.com slash marvel by the month and on twitter at marvel btm and that is it for this week so for marvel by the month my name is brian stratton and mine is rob milne Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. listeners that we do travel through time that's how we do this in the first place (laughs) yes um it's pretty easy you just read a comic book and from a different time and talk about it don't don't tell you know kang but uh yeah (laughs) this that came dangerously close to being a reading rainbow promo (laughs) (laughs) we can magically transport ourselves through time